When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Welcome to the Inside the Board's Study Smarter podcast. I'm Patrick Beeman. I am rapidly growing older attending. Inviting you to all meet Amy Chattel who is one of the new hosts of the Inside the Boards podcast, one of our hosts at large, joining us to take on some of the responsibilities of breaking down these questions and helping you guys learn on the go. I don't think I'm totally irrelevant at this point, but you know, it has been a decade since I took step one and about that time, or wait, it's been like 12 years since I took step one, and then about a decade since I took step two. So knowing that, you know, you, you can stay a little bit current by writing questions like I do or, you know, presenting lectures to med students, things of that nature. But the very best people to do this kind of work are you guys. You know, being a fourth year especially is an ideal time to really delve into kind of consolidating the information that you've learned throughout the first three years, hopefully enjoy things a little bit more kind of learn the things you want to learn that you probably won't get a chance to uh, once you really like drill down to your own specialty. So Amy, the future Dr. Chattel, thank you for volunteering to do this. And it's it's really a, my thanks to you for reaching out and wanting to help your fellow students because this is a lot of work. Yeah. Hey, so it's nice to be here. Tell I us definitely- a little more about yourself first and foremost. So I'm a fourth year medical student at West Virginia University Medical School. I've lived in West Virginia for 15 or 16 years now. So it's my home. And this coming fall, I'm hoping to match in psychiatry. 
So pretty excited about all of that, all the fun things that fourth year brings. Mm. I have a cat named Rembrandt. He's super fluffy. He probably learned half of my step one material with me because he sat on my laptop and watched all my lectures with me. <laughs> <laughs> so Rembrandt's uh, just after the artist? After the artist, yeah. He has the same like, eye color. I oh, like okay. the arts. I don't know. Oh. It's a little <laughs> fun fact. A little cliche for going into psychiatry. Ugh, I know. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I, I often, I don't know if I've said this on the podcast, but I probably have, but like, I often say like, I wish I had done psychiatry. And interestingly, man, I think like a lot of people who've helped out with ITB throughout the years, students, they really like gravitated towards psych. So hmm. hopefully no one from the American board of OBGYN ever listens to this and knows that I'm pushing people towards an entirely different specialty. <laughs> but yeah, like Nick, for instance, Nick, who is, you know, one of the, the co-founders of the platform, he matched into psychiatry and just started his internship at one of Harvard's programs just this past few weeks. So he'll be a little bit busy and I don't know how involved he'll be able to be. I imagine more so in psychiatry than OBGYN residency, hmm. but <laughs> that's how things go, you know. All right. What else about you? What do you do for fun? What do you do for fun? Uh, well, I have a really full bookshelf <laughs> that I acquire books all during the past couple of years of medical school that I want to read. And um. <laughs> I'd really enjoy getting a chance to read a bunch of them this coming year. Uh, yeah, and dude, you totally should like, and that's, wait, are you a hoarder? No. No, just, I'm just kidding. I just like collecting books. <laughs> <laughs> just the last time I was able to hardcore and regularly read something that wasn't medical related was definitely fourth year. Those were the days. So what have you read? The last, uh, last book you read? Oh, <laughs> well, right now it's step prep, but let's see. <laughs> it was by Sarah J. Mass. It's a fantasy series that she has, you know, I like, I don't know. I like a lot of different types of books, but when you're studying, I think it's nice to do a little bit of escapism. <laughs> yeah, something lighter. Else. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I totally get that. So what about your favorite book? You have one or two? You can't decide because... <laughs> so many. This is a difficult question. <laughs> There's so many. No, I hate this question. <laughs> That's why I at least gave you like or two if you can't decide. Sure. Let's go with... Out. Let's go with... Okay, actually, we'll go with The Hobbit. That was yeah. the first chapter book I actually read. I read it in like between kindergarten and first grade. And nice. it started my love of reading. Oh, sweet. So, so we we'll can get into it. some Lord of the Rings stuff. Great. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to know where, where we're going with this. What did you major in in undergrad? I majored in biology. Okay. <laughs> Classic. And, yeah. And, but maintained your, your love for extra biological disciplines or intellectual pursuits, I suppose. Yeah, I went to a liberal arts school. So like half of my curriculum was liberal arts. So literature and history. Yeah. Where was that? Uh, that was Wheeling Jesuit University. Oh, really interesting. I went to Franciscan University of Steubenville, which is on the border of West Virginia and Ohio and Southern Ohio, very small, also liberal arts school. And I took the opposite route. I majored in philosophy and, and theology and then added on some like science <laughs> to the side so I could get into med school but awesome all right so a big question i have is 
how did you find out about ITV's podcast and when did you start listening? You know, I was like cooking dinner and doing things while I was studying for step one. Would have been second year, probably around like the fall of my second year. And I was just like, dang, there's like all this like time that I could be like listening to something, but I didn't want to listen to a lecture or something. So I just was looking on the podcast app and I was like, oh, there's like a medical podcast app and they have stuff that's like totally relevant to like the block I'm on right now. Like, let's give it a listen. That was kind of the introduction. And then I've listened to every episode since. (laughs) Wow. Well, thank you. I'm at the point where I haven't listened to every episode since there are finally some other people helping, but highly recommend over on the main ITV channel. Ted, Dr. O'Connell, the author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets and Crush Step 1, he did an interview with Dr. Raj Dasgupta, also known as Dr. Raj, on sleep. And sleep medicine is one of those things that I think a lot of us just have really no idea about, which is kind of weird because it touches on probably every single specialty in medicine and all areas of health. And I would say a lot of us don't even understand it, but highly recommended over there. So I did listen to that one. But thank you for being a more dedicated fan than I myself am. (laughs) (laughs) And again, thank you for being willing to help out here. So your idea is to continue our Study Smarter series for the clerkships, correct? Yes. And I think that is totally awesome. And previously, we'd done some stuff on surgery, and we did a mini-series on psychiatry and a mini-mini-series on internal medicine. And and it looks like the, the next step for you is to do some stuff on peds. So, all right. If you have nothing else, I'd say let's dive into the first episode of our Pediatrics Study Smarter series, all about peds for the USMLE Step 2 or clerkship shelf exams. Correct? Yes. <laughs> let's all right. do it. All right. So, I guess in this role, if you want, I can play the role of the medical student or the learner. All right, you kick it off. All right, so I'm going to take this question, and I'm actually going to start with the question at the end so that you know where we're going. Which of the following is the most likely treatment for this neonate's condition? A mother brings her four-day-old male neonate to the office with complaints of bilateral eye discharge and swelling, which started two days back. She gave birth to her child via spontaneous vaginal delivery at home. She did not have any prenatal checkups. On examination, bilateral purulent discharge, along with eyelid edema, is present. The gram staining of the discharge shows intracellular diplococci. Which of the following is the most likely treatment for this neonate's condition? A. Observation only. B. Azithromycin. C. Topical vidarabine. Or D. Cephotaxime. So before you answer, think about what do you think this baby has been exposed to? Sure. I mean, if I were approaching this question, the things that I would kind of highlight, I believe, as I went through the vignette would be number one, it's peds. So I know that, you know, the different stages of development matter because a four day old neonates going to be subject to a lot different or or many different kind of disease states than a four-year-old and certainly more than a 14-year-old kid. Because like you had told me, and you hear it a lot, kids are not just little adults, right? So, you know, you have this mother, four-day-old neonate, 
what's the chief complaint, bilateral eye discharge, and what are the other relevant points. She had no prenatal care, so she didn't have any prenatal checkups. And on exam, there's bilateral purulent discharge. So we know something weird's going on. And I would say one thing that really stands out and is emphasized in two different ways in this vignette is the sentence, she gave birth to her child via spontaneous vaginal delivery at home. So that adding at home, I'm sure is important, knowing what I know about what we do with babies in the hospital. And then the other way this is kind of driven home is she did not have any prenatal care. So no prenatal care is a risk factor for a slew of different, of course, obstetric conditions, but also pediatric ones as well. And then vaguely, I remember a gram stain showing intracellular diplococci that just has always reflexively made me think the gonococcus. Since the question is kind of second order, like you're going to have to have the diagnosis here prior to being able to decide on the treatment, which is not always the case in medicine, but often is. I, I'm thinking this, this baby has a gonococcal eye infection, and that sounds relatively serious. So I'm going to rule out A, observation only in that first answer choice. Now, the next one is azithromycin. So I know that there's increasing gonococcal resistance to cephalosporins and also fluoroquinolones. And in large part for that reason, the recommendations for cervicitis from gonorrhea are to combine a ceftriaxone with azithromycin now. So knowing that, I'm going to hold on to azithromycin and not quite rule it out yet. Although as a monotherapy, it's not going to work. But still, I'm going to reserve judgment for the moment. Topical Viderabine. I'll be honest, I don't really know or remember what that is. So I'm probably not going to countenance that unless I, I get to the point where I can't rule out the others confidently. So the other one is cefotaxine. That's a cephalosporin and it's a lot like ceftriaxone. So if I had to choose one, I would say the single best answer is going to be D, cefotaxine. Yep, and you'd be right. Although yes. it's uh, <laughs> although it's good to know that uh, an answer choice that's updated, or they might say something like, "Oh, it's a resistant area," and you'd have to think, "Oh, I have to combine treatments." Yeah. So is that the case then with eye infections, neonatal conjunctivitis, like this patient has? Uh, are they treating it with both the cephalosporin and azithromycin, or? Uh, do you know that just applies to like cervical infections or OBGYN stuff? So as far as like all the practice questions that I did prior to like forming these questions, there was typically only one answer. So it wasn't, they didn't combine them. Yeah. Um, but I imagine if they were to have a second order question like this and they wanted you to combine them, they'd probably have to put a sentence in where they're like, this is a highly resistant area to monotherapy. Sure. Something like that. And I suppose, too, as the licensing exams are, it's the single best answer. So even with those other things being listed, if the only option you had was the cephalosporin, I'd, I'd still go with that one over 
azithromycin, just because I know azithromycin monotherapy is not a treatment for gonococcal infections. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right. So I know that you pointed out that timelines are really important, especially in the first couple of days of life for these kind of infectious processes. And it's no different for conjunctivitis. So what's the most likely conjunctivitis you're going to see in the first 24 hours of life? I thought that one was chlamydia. So the first 24 hours is actually due to like chemicals. Oh, Uh, right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, And then as you saw in this question stem, so from like two to like five days, it's going to be... Gonorrhea. Mm -hmm. And later on, we're going to get to another bug that presents a little further out. Chlamydia? Yeah. <laughs> Don't uh, ruin the answer. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> all right. Uh, gosh, that sounds like one of those things that could be really relevant on a shelf exam, like knowing the, the timing of presentation. I'll have to think about that, though. I can't think of like a mnemonic. Well, I mean, an infectious process is going to take time. Okay. So I think that makes sense that the chemicals would hmm. be the issue first, because, you know, if you drop acid on yourself, you're going to have a chemical burn pretty quickly. But if you're exposed to an infection, it's going to take a few days to present. Hey, man, there you go. Thinking clinically. Awesome. You're, you're going to be a better doctor than I am currently. Um, so what chemicals are going to cause this in the first 24 hours of life? That's a really good question. Ha <laughs> <laughs> I don't know no, the answer. <laughs> it's like what I do with med students sometimes. Like I'll ask a question. They'll be like, Wow, I don't know. I'm like, no, I don't either. I'm I'm really just asking, like, do you know? Just random things I <laughs> I wonder myself. I'm like, you guys should know this more than me. But okay, so I imagine it's because at birth we give treatments to prevent gonococcal eye infection and chlamydial eye infections, right? Yes. And those are topical what? They're like topical ointments. So in the eyes. And so in theory, someone could have a reaction to the carrier. So one thing to note, even if a mother has been given an antibiotic to treat their gonococcal infection, the infant can still get this infection. So it's good to prophylax against it when they're born. And so that's why when neonates are first introduced into the world, erythromycin antibiotic ointment is put. On their little eyes. Okay. And that prevents uh, gonorrhea? Yes. Okay. Oh, you know what? I think that then the chemical conjunctivitis is probably caused by just the, the ointments uh, themselves because silver nitrate I know is used. I don't even know. I, you know, don't call me on this. I don't know if it still is. But that was used to prevent gonococcal infections topically in newborn's eyeballs. And now they just use uh, erythromycin. Yeah. And then one last point from the question. I know one of the answer choices was topical vidarabine. Yeah. And that's the treatment of choice for herpetic conjunctivitis. 
Hmm. Okay, that makes sense. And so you're not really going to see that in hospitals today, at least in America, because if a woman has herpes outbreak, it's an indication for C-section. Yeah. And now that I think about it, too, we don't apply anything to the infant's eyes for chlamydia at birth. That's right. Yeah, that's the whole reason we check everyone in pregnancy for GC and uh, chlamydia, uh, because the best way to yeah prevent eye disease from chlamydial infection at birth is for mom not to have chlamydia. Exactly. So there's there's probably some good points to remember. The timing, you said first 24 hours, chemical irritation, conjunctivitis, two to five days, is that what you said? Four days, five days? Yeah, two to five days. Two to five days. So first few days of life is gonorrhea. And then thereafter, in the neonatal period, chlamydial conjunctivitis, treat it with cefotaxime, prevent it with topical application of erythromycin, which goes back to this question mentioning that the baby was born at home and there was no prenatal care. So the baby did not get that topical application of erythromycin to prevent gonococcal conjunctivitis. And then when it comes to chlamydia, there is nothing we give at birth. We just try to treat it or prevent it in the mother. Is that a good summary of all the high-yield learning points yeah, there? Yeah, that was perfect. And we'll I can be taught. see a few other things that I guess like touch into all of those learning points in future questions. All right. All right. So would you like to read this question? Oh, yes. I, I would be delighted to do that. All right, so first up is the interrogatory or lead-in. Based on the most likely diagnosis, which of the following manifestations is this neonate most at risk of developing? And the vignette. A one-day-old male is transferred to the ICU after birth. He was born via spontaneous vaginal delivery to a 22-year-old Gravita 2 Para 1 at term. The mother recently emigrated from Africa and had poor prenatal care. Her past medical history is negative. The baby's APGAR scores were 7 and 8 at 1 and 5 minutes. Baby's birth weight was 2,310 grams, 2310. In the delivery room, the baby was found to have respiratory distress requiring supplemental oxygen. Physical exam, notable for a tiny baby. Small infant with an erythematous maculopapular rash on his trunk, face, abdomen, and extremities. Oh man, that's like all over. A three to six systolic murmurs heard at the left sternal border. An abdominal examination is notable for hepatosplenomegaly. Red reflexes are absent bilaterally. A complete blood count is notable for thrombocytopenia. And so we return to based on the most likely diagnosis. Which of the following manifestations is this neonate most at risk of developing? Damn, this neonate's got some stuff going on. So, going through the vignette, things of note. We've got a one-day-old baby, male, vaginal delivery at term, poor prenatal care, APGAR's 7-8, birth weight is low, 2,300 grams, essentially, respiratory distress at birth, small baby on exam with diffuse maculopapular rash and a systolic murmur at the left sternal border, 
Patosplenomegaly, no red reflexes, thrombocytopenia. So this one is a torch infection. Yes. Okay. But I'm, I'm probably not going to be sufficiently okay with that diagnosis. I'm probably going to have to know more. Yes. All right. So, <laughs> all right. Let me think about this. So with these, I'd probably have to rule out all of the torch infections unless, well, no. So diffuse macular papular rash with IUGR and thrombocytopenia hepatosplenomegaly. What's a good buzz phrase for that presentation, the rash? I wanted to say blueberry muffin, but that's not right. Yeah, it is. That's the. That's it the is? Rash. Yeah. Okay, never mind. Rubella. There we go. Right? Yes. Oh, it is? Okay. Phew. I get really uh, self-conscious going through that with you. Now I remember what it's like to be a med student because I'm like, man, I'm an OBGYN. I should know this stuff like that. But, you know, even me, I got to think through these things. And also, most people are vaccinated against rubella, so it would be rare that you would see this. Uh, That is true. I have never seen this. (laughs) That is absolutely true. Answer choices, then, I guess we could go through. So we have the diagnosis. We're going with congenital rubella syndrome. So we need to figure out which of the following other things is going to be a consequence of congenital rubella syndrome. A was sensory neural deafness. B was glaucoma, C was endocrine abnormalities, and D is progressive panencephalitis. Ooh, I remember what that is. Well, if you know what that is, why not talk through it? Okay. Progressive panencephalitis is measles. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to rule that. I, I can tell you very little else about measles, except that it was essentially eradicated. Sensory neural deafness. I would definitely keep that one in there because I feel like that is with a lot of the torch infections just in general. Glaucoma being, is that just a throwaway answer to confuse you with cataracts? Yes. Or do, okay, so none of the torch infections give glaucoma. That's an old person disease, essentially. Do kids get glaucoma? I don't even know. Probably. probably. You probably can. <laughs> you can. <laughs> I'm just trying to think. I don't ever think I've ever remembered reading about it in the context of pediatrics, but whatever. It's also been a while since I've done pediatrics. Endocrine abnormalities. Can't think of anything in the broad category of endocrine abnormality. I would think there is some within the torch infections, but with this one, I'd go with sensory neural deafness because I know that's associated with torch infections, and I know that I have a torch infection here. And in fact, I probably would have chose this even if I couldn't get the diagnosis down to congenital rubella syndrome because I can rule out panencephalitis simply because I know it's measles and that is not a torch infection. Glaucoma I would have ruled out because I just didn't remember reading about glaucoma in the context of pediatric, you know, neonatal kind of stuff. And I don't think I saw it as part of a torch infection. You can write in if I'm totally wrong on that podcast at insidetheboards.com. And then endocrine abnormalities, I feel like it's too broad. So I would have whittled it down to two and probably picked sensory neural deafness simply because I know that that is associated with torch infections. And I'm just going to trust that that knowledge is the sort of thing that the USMLE writers want me to have, because it is at least worth knowing things like that even if you aren't going to see this. So does that make sense? 
Yeah. I mean, sometimes if you don't have, I mean, you're going to be faced with questions that maybe you've never seen before. It's a very strange presentation. And so sometimes that's what you have to do when you're approaching questions is, okay, I know it's not this. I know it's not this. And you give yourself better odds of picking the right answer. Yeah. Amen to that. All right. So you got the torch infection correct. It is rubella. And there's actually three, there's like a triad of symptoms you should recognize for congenital rubella syndrome. And those are cataracts, so that was in the stem, congenital heart defects with that uh, systolic murmur, and then sensorineural defects or deafness. I don't know if I can say this, but I know a lot of our listeners probably use Sketchy, and so they have a really good image of a baby yeah. with congenital oh, I'm rubella. Sure, <laughs> I'm sure you can because everyone's Sketchy is great. So, <laughs> all right, check out Sketchy's, or are you wanting to describe it? Sure. I think it's, um, so it's in the rubella sketch. It's like a yellow golden image. So the baby can have jaundice. It has a blueberry muffin rash. The eyes are blanked out. So you know that they have cataracts. They're holding their hands up to their ears. So kind of like the see no evil, speak no evil, hear no evil monkey. So you know that the baby's deaf. Yeah. There you go. Painting a picture right there. Thanks to sketchy medical who did not support this podcast. So this is not sponsored content. All right, what else can you teach me about rubella? Well, uh, so let's see. Some other things that you can find with rubella, apart from the triad, the baby may have a low birth weight, thrombocytopenic purpura, so the blue brain rash, the hemolytic anemia, hepatosplenomegaly, or meningoencephalitis. Although the baby could just have the sensorineural deafness. It's kind of a a variable presentation, but question writers should be pretty fair when they throw out a couple of those things so that you know where you're going. Yeah, so you can get deafness in CMV too. And that's the challenge I think with the torch infections is there are indicators that there is a torch infection, but it doesn't necessarily whittle it down to the unique factors of each. And a lot of them like one or two or three of them share certain features so the the triad of rubella you said is cataract congenital heart defects and deafness sensory neural deafness so if you can get sensory neural deafness and you can also get like a a rash like that in some of the others too deafness in a rash just gets you torch infection but if you add cataracts with congenital heart defects, does that get you to rubella over CMV, which also has deafness? Yes, that's exactly what will happen. And then Um, CMV microcalcifications, periventricular microcalcifications is unique to that. As well as microcephaly. And Oh, right. And microcephaly. Okay. And then there's one other torch infection that does typically have the like blueberry muffin rash. Do you know what it is? You can get it if you have cats. Oh, toxoplasmosis. Mm-hmm. Do you worry about this, having a cat? <laughs> well, I think you can have <sighs> antibodies to it if you've been exposed before pregnancy. So I think I'm okay. <laughs> I wonder if you can get it from watching too many online meta lectures. Oh, online meta joke. Also, free <laughs> advertising for online meta. <laughs> um, all right. So toxo, yes, that's true. Oh, and you also get intracranial calcifications with that. And a big head, i.e. hydrocephalus. 
Yeah. All right. How do you remember this stuff? I feel like I, if I were listening to this, I'd be all confused. I, I would be able to probably remember the congenital rubella discussion here. Cataracts, congenital heart defects, sensory neural deafness in the setting of a blueberry muffin type rash. But how, how do you keep it straight? Is there an easy way? It's another reference to Sketchy, unfortunately. I was going to say, just use Sketchy. <laughs> just use Sketchy. <laughs> I think uh, for the Toxo. Hey, they, people write to Sketchy and be like, wow, Inside the Boards really like is promoting you guys hardcore. Just tweet them out. Then we can get them to come back on the show. <laughs> That'd be wonderful. <laughs> yeah, should. All right. Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. That's all right. So um, the way I remember Toxo presentation, I think there's... Someone has like their head stuck in like a fishbowl, so it's filled with water. So that's how I remember the hydrocephalus and like the larger head size. I think there's like milk getting spilled. So I remember the intracranial calcifications and then the chorioretinitis. They normally have that, like they like have like an actual picture of chorioretinitis, like in the sketch, I think. Mm. So it's just all about building like either like a mental palace of like, I guess it's called a mind palace, a mind map. Like of like the infection and like the things that you would most likely find in a stem. Yeah. So that's why like Sketchy is so good at it because they just, they have these fun characters with the triads you want to remember. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that's kind of a way better way to present the information too, because you could make a table that's like intracranial calcifications on the top, hydrocephalus, chorioretinitis, and then check the box like, oh, intracranial calcifications, check for toxo, check for, I guess you could say CMV, although those are more specifically periventricular, I think, uniquely. And that 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 could just get so confusing. Yeah, I'd probably just remember all but one of these. Number one, just for testing purposes, I would just not study one of them. So I didn't have <laughs> as much in my brain. And then I guess I would just look for those unique differentiators or the, the two features that differentiate one of the diseases from the other. So a good example of that is you mentioned like toxo big head, right? With intracranial. small head. Small head. So if you've got calcifications of some sort inside the head and a torch infection, if the head is big, toxo. If it's small, cytomegalovirus. And toxo is farther along in the alphabet. So there's like a, a larger amount of words you'd have to sing if you were singing the alphabet song. So toxo, bigger head. I don't know. That's probably something like how I'd remember it. Cytolomegalovirus C is, you know, not as smaller amount of words you have to say if you're singing the alphabet song to get to C. So small head. All right, is that everything for this question? Yeah, that seems like everything I'd want to cover for this question. Okay, Lots sweet. of knowledge. <laughs> yeah, totally. All right, everyone, that is it for today. Join us next time on the Inside the Boards podcast for even more high-yield learning. <laughs>